Good morning. I hope that you're doing well today. I want to start off by just asking you a question. Has there ever been a time that you have been really, really scared of something? Like maybe you've had a near-death experience or you were coming face-to-face with something that was just way more powerful than you and you were like, shoot, I don't know if I'm going to make it out of this kind of thing. Um, when I think about that, I think back to my honeymoon, actually, uh, not related to marriage. My marriage is awesome. I wasn't scared about that. Um, but we were in Mexico and uh, we were out kind of at this secluded beach, my wife and I, and uh, she's not the best swimmer. She'll tell you that. And uh, we were out in the ocean kind of playing in the waves and uh, this kind of decent sized wave came in and it started to like take her under and she started to get washed back out into the ocean a little bit by it. And, uh, I was in I was in a little bit closer to the beach, but I remember looking at her face and just seeing this look of like sheer terror, like, oh my goodness, I'm gonna drown. Now, thankfully, we really weren't that far out and uh, it wasn't that hard to get to her and, and we were able to easily get back into shore. Um, and it was really just like a two second kind of thing of just like sheer terror, but I saw that look on her face. I don't think I'll ever forget it. And uh, that's the, the kind of thing that I'm talking about. It's like, man, have you ever had this experience where you came face to face with something that you were like, you realized how small you are and how much more powerful this other thing is that you were encountering? Uh, maybe you've had near-death experiences that you think about that. Um, maybe you, you don't have something like that, but you're still really acqu- well acquainted with fear in your life. Uh, you kind of just have a residual fear that's always in the background. Um, you don't necessarily have an intense experience, but you uh, have a fear that's holding you back from things all the time. Maybe it's a fear of uh, rejection or a fear of failure. Um, I, I think that our lives can be full of all of these kind of fears. And by nature, fear is a very unpleasant feeling. Right, I actually looked up the definition of fear and it says an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or a threat. So naturally, since it's an unpleasant emotion, most of us don't really want to have a lot of fear in our lives. But just because it's unpleasant, I have to ask, is fear something that is bad? Is it a bad thing? Yes or no? You know, it's easy to, to, for us to classify something that's unpleasant as being bad. And it's also really easy for us to point to a lot of the negative consequences that fear can bring in our lives, right? Like, not just the, the fact that it's unpleasant, but it can kind of turn us into a spectator in our own lives. I feel like I see this with people a lot, where you feel like you're really being held back from experiencing life in the fullest because you have so much fear. I think of when I was a kid growing up, we'd go to an amusement park with my brothers or my cousins, And if my mom was with us, she was always just the one that would stay behind with all the stuff and everything. She never rode any of the rides. And the reason is because she's like deathly afraid of roller coasters. You cannot get her to get on a roller coaster to save her life. But with that, it it kind of painted this picture for you. Like, man, here she is. We're at an amusement park. Like, you come to this so you can enjoy these rides and all this kind of stuff. But she's missing out on all of this because this fear that's holding her back. Now, it's not a perfect illustration because my mom still enjoyed the time there and was happy that we were having a good time. But you get the idea that fear can be something that really stops you from experiencing life as God has designed it for you to experience. Now, much more so than just stopping you from riding rides on an amusement park, I see fear cause real problems in people's lives. Uh, It stops them from building friendships because you're afraid to kind of put yourself out there and try and meet new people. You say, well, what will happen if they actually get to know me? What will happen if they reject me and don't want me as a friend? And so you kind of just stay to yourself. 
or fear can hold you back from getting into dating relationships that might actually be good sometimes. It's like, well, you know, what if she rejects me? I'm afraid to ask her out. And so you never end up actually pursuing that. Fear can be something that hinders us from sharing our faith. I know a lot of Christians struggle with this. We all do, I think, on some level where it's like, man, I don't want to be kind of seen as an outcast or a weirdo or I don't want to damage a relationship if I start to try and share my faith with somebody about how they need Jesus. And so it cripples us and it stops us from doing so much that God would have for us. But then again, I also have to say fear does have a purpose, right? Like it's not entirely a negative thing. Uh, Fear is actually a really useful survival mechanism, and if it's in balance, it can be helpful. I remember last summer I watched a documentary called Free Solo. It's about this climber, uh, and he wants to climb this giant cliff called uh, El Capitan out at Yosemite. It's like a 3,000-foot cliff or something, and he uh, wants to do this without using any rope. So that's what's called to be free soul. You just climb up by yourself and you've got no rope or anything. It's totally free. Now that is incredibly dangerous. And as you're watching this documentary, you see that this guy's brain doesn't actually work the same way as most people's do. Uh, But you also hear these stories of all these other guys that have done free solo climbing. And eventually it seems like most of them end up dead because if you take a fall like that, there's nothing to catch you. It would be healthy probably for him to have a little bit more fear than he does. And for most of us, we would look at that and we'd stare up a 3,000 foot uh, cliff and say, yeah, that's not a good idea to climb that without a rope. And so we understand that fear actually has, it's not just something that stops us from living life, but it can be something that actually helps preserve life. So I have a hard time saying that fear in essence is either good or bad, but what does matter is the level of fear that you have and what it's directed towards. You know, the Bible actually speaks of uh, plenty of times where people are told not to fear. We see this hindering function of it. Matthew 10, 28 says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Psalm 118, 6 says, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? And Isaiah 41, 13 says, For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Now, I could go on with a ton more examples. There's over 100 times in the Bible that we see this command to fear not. And so we see consistently that God is trying to get his people to move to a spot where we don't have a lot of fear in our lives. But you'll also see that this idea is consistently tied to the idea that God is with us, right? Even if you look back at these verses, where it says, the Lord is on my side and will not fear what can man do to me. So the the reason that we don't fear is because God is with us. Now there is... There are times throughout the Bible, though, that we are told to fear. As a matter of fact, it's the fear of the Lord that is consistently extolled as being something that's good. Uh, I only read the first half of Matthew 10, 28 earlier, but I want to read the whole verse now, which says, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So it's not just that we shouldn't fear at all, right? He says, don't fear people, but do fear God, who's the one that's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. The fear of the Lord is consistently painted as being a good thing in Scripture. Look at Proverbs 9.10. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 147.11 says, But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, and those who hope in His steadfast love. 
And so the picture that's coming together here is that fear of people is bad, but fear of God is good. And I think that most of us have this out of balance in our lives. Most of us, I think, have way too much fear of people and not nearly enough fear of God. And so what ends up happening in that case is that we end up uh, kind of dictating our lives by what people want rather than what God wants because our fear of people is greater than our fear of the Lord. And so my hope this morning is that I'll be able to help us kind of dive into this a little bit more and help us to, to get our fear into a healthier balance of where it should be. Because when our fear is out of balance, we become very weak and timid Christians. Uh, we can be people that neglect to share our faith with others. Or we can be people that won't confront sin in our own lives or in the lives of others when we see it. Uh, we can be people that, when we're under pressure uh, to, to give up on our biblical convictions, we cave. Because we fear the consequences of what others might do. These are not the kind of people that we want to be. And so this morning we're going to actually look at two different stories that illustrate the importance of standing for the Lord boldly, even in times where you're in a scary situation. So as we're continuing through our provider series here and looking at the way that God provides for his people, my message this morning is that God provides for us when we fear him and not man. So let's pray and then we'll dive into each of these stories. God, we love you and we thank you so much for who you are. I thank you that you have a great love for us, uh, that you are our father, that you care for us, and that, Lord, you give us reason to not have to fear man, and that we have the opportunity to, to rest in you, to walk with you, to be protected by you, Lord, and yet you are mighty and awesome, and you are the only one that's actually worthy of our fear. So Lord, help us this morning to understand even uh, what this concept is and what it looks like to both fear you and to love you. And also, Lord, help us to uh, be people that learn from those that have walked in faith before us courageously. That we could be people like them that look to you and that trust you and that stand boldly for you in every kind of situation. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen. Okay, so our first story is going to come from uh, the book of Daniel. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open up to Daniel chapter 3. We're also going to have the text on the screen for you if you just want to read it that way. Uh, but if you're going to flip there, I'll get, I'm going to give you some time by just filling you in on context of what's going on in this story. Uh, book of Daniel, we are in a situation where... Uh, Israel has started, Israel and Judah have split. They've started to get weak. And this country called Babylon comes and invades Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judah. And as they do this, they take away some of the best and brightest young men from Jerusalem to uh, cause them to come back to Babylon, to learn the Babylonian language, to become more like Babylonians, and to serve in the king's court. So that makes sense, right? You take the best talent out of this place and you try and make your country better by bringing them into it. So in the book of Daniel, we're introduced to these uh, four guys that all get selected to be brought back to Babylon and be brought into the king's court. Daniel is one of these men who the book is named after. And then he also has three friends whose names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But when they get there, they're given new Babylonian names. And so the four new names that they get, Daniel becomes Belteshazzar. And then the other three, you might know better by their Babylonian names, which are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
Now, Daniel has, uh, he's a dream interpreter, and King Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon, has this dream, and Daniel interprets it perfectly for him. And with that, Daniel ends up rising to a high position in Babylon, and he makes sure to get his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into good positions as well. So that's the context that we're in, where we pick up in chapter 3, and uh, we're going to read here, starting at verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, Nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and people of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Alright, this is bad news if you're a Jew. Because idol worship is specifically and explicitly prohibited in the Old Testament law. And so there's no way if you're a Jew that wants to be faithful to the Lord that you're going to obey this command to bow down and worship this stupid idol that Nebuchadnezzar has built. So here we have a perfect example of being caught between two different scary things, right? If you are Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, if you're Daniel, you're in a position where there are two kind of terrifying things that want opposite stuff from you. On the one hand, you have the threat of being thrown into a blazing furnace. That seems pretty scary to me, right? And that's what King Nebuchadnezzar said is going to happen if you don't bow down and obey what he wants you to do. Yet on the other hand, you have the almighty God of the universe who created all things and has given his law to you. And he says that you will not worship any sort of graven image or idol that's made. And so two positions, two different kinds of kings, an earthly king and a heavenly king that have told you opposite things. And you realize there are very real consequences if you defy this earthly king. And there are very real consequences if you you define this heavenly king. So what is it that you're going to choose to do? None of us like to be put in situations like this, right? Like we all just wish that we have one authority over us and there's never another authority that's telling us something different. The reality is though, if we want to be faithful followers of Jesus in this world, we're almost certainly going to come up across different situations that reflect this. Maybe not to this level of intensity, but the reality is this world is not our home. And as a matter of fact, this world is consistently spoken of of a place where it's under the influence of Satan and that that many are going under the influence of Satan. And so naturally, this world has a way of life that is contrary to what the Lord wants for us. And if we want to live faithfully to the Lord, it's going to put us in situations sometimes where we have to defy what the world's expectations are for us. I have friends right here in Ohio right now that are actually undergoing persecution for their faith because of this very kind of thing. 
Uh, that because they have taken a biblical stance on gender and sexuality, uh, they have started to get all sorts of heat uh, from people on social media. They even had protesters that showed up at their church this past Sunday, all because they are faithfully trying to stand for the Lord and what he said in their scriptures, and all in a very, very loving manner, by the way, which is exactly what Jesus tells us to do also. But because of this theology and this faithfulness that they have in trying to stand for what God has said, they are starting to experience persecution because it rubs very differently against the culture that we live in. And I believe as our culture moves more and more in that direction, more and more of us as Christians are going to find ourselves in positions where the world is going to try and force us to get in line with what they want. And if we don't, we are going to experience opposition and persecution. And so this is exactly the situation that we find our friends here in Daniel in. Let's uh, read on here and continue to see what, what they're going to do. Starting at verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you've set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to save you, able to rescue you from my hand? Now, we don't know where Daniel is in this story. For some reason, it's just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm assuming Daniel was probably off on an official business in some other country. I don't know. That's just an assumption for me. But we do know that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been defying this order, and there are people that go and tattle on them. So the king brings them and says, hey, is this true? This report that I'm hearing. And really, even before he gives them a chance to answer, he's like, you know what? If you just do it, if you, if you just worship this thing right now, it's going to be fine. I don't even really care what you've done historically. Just make sure that you do it here going forward. And he, this would be a really, really difficult situation to be in as well, right? Because these guys have already been defying the king's order. And that's one thing, right? You can kind of just do that and hope that it, gets, that it doesn't get noticed and you can just go on with your life. But now they've been caught. They're brought before the king and he's actually giving them what seems like a really easy out. It's like, hey, I'm not going to throw you into the furnace right now. All you got to do is worship this idol and all will be well. And this points to something I think that's really interesting about what it takes to follow Jesus is that you are going to be put in spots where you have to consistently have perseverance in choosing to follow him. You know, choosing to do it one day and not do it another is one thing. But every time that you're in the situation, choose to say, no, I'm going to still be faithful to Jesus. That's much harder. And so I can only think of how easy it would have been for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be like, all right, we're just going to sell it this one time. We're literally here in front of the king. Let's just do it. And then, you know, when we get back to our normal lives, we'll kind of try and skirt around it as much as we can. So we're just going to sell out this one time. That would be a really, really tempting thing, right? Like, like 
I, I can see how most of us would probably think of doing something like that and say, ah, God will forgive me later. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they, they were thinking a little bit different from this. So let's go on and, and see what their response was here. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. And that is an awesome response, right? That's like a mic drop moment. Here they are. They're standing before the most powerful man in the world at that time. And he's giving them the chance to say, hey, you can choose life or death right here in front of me. And I say, dude, we don't even need to give you an answer. Like, we're, we're just not going to do this. That is, that's a crazy response. Like, can you imagine yourself being in that kind of situation and saying, you know what? I don't really care what you have to do to me. Uh, I'm not going to be unfaithful to my Lord. And by the way, he's able to save me from whatever it is that you're going to do. And I think that the only reason that they were able to respond like this is because of who they were thinking about. They weren't thinking about themselves. They weren't thinking about King Nebuchadnezzar and all the power he had and the servants that he could dispatch to do whatever he wanted. They were thinking about God. And because their minds were set on the Lord, this is what allowed them to say, I'm going to be faithful to him. So we see here how significant it is that we would be people that constantly have our minds set on the Lord. Because as we do that and we have our eyes on Him, it gives us the courage and the confidence that we need to act in situations like this, where it would be very easy to take our eyes off and start worrying about our own skin or start thinking about all the power that this other person wants to do that's able to, has and what they can do, this other person that wants to harm us. But I also love what they say here, that even if our God doesn't deliver us. We're still not going to do this. And I think, man, we have so much to learn from these guys in their response, right? First off, their mind was set on the Lord. They realized that the almighty God of the universe is way more powerful than this stupid little puny human king that has such a limited power in comparison over what he can do to them. But also they say, hey, even if our God doesn't deliver us, we're not going to do this. So we see that they have this mentality of God doesn't owe us anything. Right? Like, I, I'm not going to say, well, yeah, I'll only follow you if you give me X, Y, and Z. And I think this is a mentality that we have a lot of time. And something that sometimes I think even our evangelism reflects this, where people are kind of almost tried to be coaxed into following Jesus. Like, hey, come follow him. It'll give you a great life. Or uh, he'll give you all of these kind of things. And so we almost think that we can make this deal with God. Like, I'll follow you so long as you give me all of these things that I want. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't have that mentality. They say, this is the almighty God of the universe. He is worthy of our worship. He's more powerful than anything. He is great. I am going to obey him and follow him regardless of whatever he chooses to do with me. And man, may we be people that have the same view of God. That we say, we believe in God. We believe that he's for us. We believe that he loves us. We believe that he is almighty, that he is powerful, and that he can deliver us from any sort of difficult situation. But he doesn't owe us anything. And what, however he may choose to act in a given situation, it is not going to change my faithfulness to him. Man, I love that. So much that we can learn from these guys. So let's move on here and, and see how Nebuchadnezzar responds to this. Verse 19 we say, Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent that the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. All right, so we see that King Nebuchadnezzar acts exactly as you would expect an entitled ruler to act. He's furious that somebody decided that they weren't going to obey what he said. And so he orders that they should be murdered and thrown into a furnace because they didn't want to do what he told them that they should do. And you see this incredible disregard that he has for human life, so much so that uh, he f heats the fire up and forces these guys to throw them in. And they even get killed from being close to how hot this furnace was. Now, I can't imagine what it would be like to be thrown into a blazing furnace, but I can imagine that you probably wouldn't last long, especially if the heat was so intense that the guys who came near to throw the other men in already died from the heat that was coming out from it. Uh, let's move on here and see what happens, because short of a miracle, there is absolutely no way that these guys are going to survive. So picking back up at verse 24, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, Weren't there three men that were tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded, crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So God delivered them in an amazing way. Uh, we see that they're walking around in this fire unharmed. And as a matter of fact, there's a fourth one. There's, there's some angel that he sent that is going and protecting them. And we see that this, of course, has an incredible impact on Nebuchadnezzar. That he was impacted by the faithfulness of these men. Now, I'm not convinced that Nebuchadnezzar necessarily became a true worshiper of the Lord. Um, you know, he still has a long way to go. It seems like now he just wants to cut people to pieces that say bad things about the one true God. But hey, he's moving at least in a direction where he realizes there's something to this God that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are following. Our faithfulness in the times of difficulty demonstrates this to other people. It's a very powerful thing to see somebody standing for the Lord in the midst of persecution, to be bold in the time that you know that they're going to lose something. You see that, that becomes a very inspiring thing.
And I'm, I would think that most of us probably have people in our lives either that we've read about or maybe even that we know personally that have demonstrated courage under fire and, and faithfulness that has helped strengthen us in the way that we want to follow Jesus. I think of, uh, this was just even a minor thing, but when I was in college, I had a uh, professor that was just openly mocking the Lord in uh, in a lecture that we had. It was in a big lecture hall class. And so I wasn't just going to sit by and let this professor openly mock the Lord. And it was like a government class that we had or something. So I challenged him on it. I started to challenge the things that he was saying. And uh, after class, there was a girl that came up to me and she's like, Hey, I just want to thank you that uh, you did something that I wasn't strong enough to do. And she was thankful that I had stood up to this professor as he was mocking the Lord. And the reality is what I did that day in being faithful to the Lord helped strengthen the faith of this girl. And I think that there's a better chance that if she ever finds herself in a situation like that again, that she'll be more willing to stand for the Lord in whatever difficult time she might have. Now, this is, of course, a really feel-good story, right? Like, you love the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I remember when I was a kid, my dad used to tell us this story sitting around fires. And I have fond memories of it. Of course, it has a really happy ending that God delivers them in this miraculous way. But this isn't how every story ends. It's not how every story is guaranteed then for the Christians. We saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew that it might not end this way, right? They said, hey, even if he doesn't deliver us, we're not going to serve your gods, Well, that's the same mentality that others have had throughout history. And while some have been delivered in the same way that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, there are others that have not been. And so in order to to be faithful to the scriptures about this and to balance this and to help pastor you as best I can, I want to look at another story uh, that, that ends somewhat differently. And this comes from the New Testament in the book of Acts. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be Acts chapter six. Acts chapter six and seven is where this goes from. We're not going to read as much text from this one, but I'm basically just going to summarize it for you. That in Acts chapter six, we're introduced to this guy named Stephen. And Stephen is an awesome dude. He's described as a man that's full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and he's full of grace and power. Uh, He was a guy that was selected to help oversee a bread distribution ministry uh, that the church had that was taking care of these like widows and orphans and people that were in need. And uh, not only was he doing that and serving his community, but he also was actually working signs and wonders. God was working through him in miraculous ways. And he was apparently a really good uh, um, apologist, a, a defender of the faith. So he was able to reason really well. And, and he was having a big impact on his community and helping people come to know Jesus. And so this guy seems like a, an amazing man. I mean, if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were, were good candidates for the Lord to save because of their faithfulness, you would think Stephen would be the same way. Like, this guy was super faithful. Maybe God's going to save him from a difficult situation that he gets into. Now, he's, a, he's such a great representative for the Christian faith that there's these people that start to get really annoyed with him as he continues to beat them in arguments and as he continues to work these signs and wonders. So they start to speak lies about him and uh, they slander him and they say that he's been blaspheming the Lord and they bring him before this Jewish council called the Sanhedrin. Now, uh, Stephen lives in Jerusalem and Jerusalem is under the power of the Romans at this time. However, Romans liked to try and let uh, the local people govern themselves as much as possible. They were under the authority of the Romans, but they let the actual people there govern a lot of their day-to-day affairs that helped pacify the population more. And so this Jewish council is kind of a uh, government under a government that's helping run Jerusalem. 
And so Stephen's brought before these guys, and uh, there's these charges of blasphemy. And so he gets the opportunity to answer to them, and he, he takes it to preach a, a really great sermon. And he starts this sermon where he's talking about all of these ways that God has worked uh, throughout history and how he's interacted with his people. And pretty much everything he has to say is stuff that would be right in line with what these Jewish teachers of the Sanhedrin believe, because he's kind of just going through the Old Testament. It was at the end that he starts to offend them though. And uh, we'll see how he ends his sermon here because he gets to a point where he's talking about the temple and how, yeah, uh, Solomon built this temple for God, but ultimately God doesn't dwell in temples that are made by human hands. And so the implication is that there has to be some other greater way that God is coming to interact with his people. And this is what he says here, starting in Acts 7 verse 51. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. And so he's telling them, you guys are, you're missing it, right? Like we saw that, that God ultimately doesn't dwell in this temple. There has to be something more that's coming. These prophets told about this coming righteous one and you guys have rejected him and murdered him. You're stiff necked. You're resisting the spirit by the spirit. John the Baptist was preaching this message. And now there's others like Stephen himself that are preaching this message. You can look to the prophets and how they foretold this, but your ancestors killed the prophets that foretold it. And now you killed the very righteous one that they were talking about. And so as, as Stephen gets into this, you can imagine that now the blood is starting to boil of the people that hear this because they have just recently killed Jesus. And they thought that Jesus was a terrible man. They did not see him as the Messiah that the prophets were talking about. And now their anger starts to boil over at Stephen. And so with this, uh, th this is what they continue on to do, and starting in verse 54. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I have seen heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. All right, now when it says that he fell asleep there, it doesn't mean that Stephen took a nap uh, in the midst of being stoned. This is a way of saying that Stephen died, but the author has that word choice for a very specific reason. Uh, because even though he died in the flesh, he's looking forward to the day that one day Stephen's going to be resurrected. And that ultimately, even though Stephen's life in this earth was passing away, it's kind of a blip on the radar. And so in some ways it makes more sense to, to classify it as saying that he fell asleep than it is that he actually died. Because he realizes that Stephen has eternal life. But we have to ask, as we look at this story and we just see Stephen get murdered for standing for the Lord, and you say, well, did God provide for him? Like, he literally just let this guy get stoned to death. It was amazing to see how God saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from this furnace, but, but what about Stephen? Why did God let this happen? And on the surface, I can see that it looks like God didn't provide for him. 
But I think that can't be further from the truth. There is more than just this world. There is more than just the preservation of our physical lives. And so when I say that God provides for his people when we fear him and not man, that he will provide for us when we stand boldly for him, I believe that is absolutely true. That will always be true that God provides for his children when they stand boldly for him. And you see that even in this passage, it shows us that God did provide for Stephen. Right? I already talked about the phrasing of the fact that he fell asleep. It's not like he died. It's not like he perished for eternity. Stephen was, was entering into eternal life. As a matter of fact, we see even as he uh, is sitting there being stoned, he says that, Lord, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And they rushed at him because he says, I see that Jesus, I see him standing there with the Father. He's getting a vision into what he is about to actually enter into. And so he's able to actually have the same reaction that Jesus had. He said, Lord, don't, don't hold this sin against them. And just like Jesus actually said on the cross uh, that, that he was commanding his spirit into the hands of the Father, Jesus, uh, here Stephen is saying, Lord, Jesus, receive my spirit. And God provided for him because his spirit is received by Jesus. And see, this is what's so beautiful about the fact that, that we can say, hey, no matter what, we, we can have that mentality of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, even if God doesn't deliver us physically from our, from our uh, difficulties, even if we do end up in prison, even if we do end up killed, even if we do end up tortured, whatever it may be, God has provided for us because this life is brief and momentary. And ultimately, he has prepared a home for us that will never perish and we are going to be raised with bodies that will never perish and this is all because of that righteous one Jesus Christ that Stephen spoke about that yes the the Jewish leaders murdered but guess what he rose from the dead and as Jesus was murdered there was actually great purpose in that you see Jesus knew that he had to come and be murdered because when he was he hung on the cross and he did that so that he could pay the penalty for our sins God has told us that the penalty for sin is death that's the wage for it but, but God himself came in the flesh and, and he, he took on a body and, and he literally hung on the cross and died the death that we deserve. And so all of the sin, all the punishment that we deserve was put on him on the cross. And with that, we can be forgiven that God looks at us and says, your sin is already punished. Your sin is already taken care of. And just as Jesus rose from the dead three days later, that's the first fruits of our resurrection. We know that we will raise again with him also. And so even if somebody kills us here in the body, so what? Jesus said that in Matthew 10, 28 that we read earlier. Don't, don't fear ones that, that can kill only the body. Fear the one that can destroy both the body and soul in hell. Well, the good news is the one that can destroy both the body and soul in hell has made a way for us that we don't have to go there. But he has made a way for us to be saved and to come and to live with him for eternity. And so that as we die, even if we are killed under unjust circumstances like this, that we can say, Lord Jesus, into your, into your hands I commit my spirit and know that he will receive it. Man, this is a beautiful truth. That those who fear God have nothing else to fear because he has saved us from the only thing that is truly terrible, which is his wrath. God's wrath is the only thing that's really and truly worth fearing. And he poured that out on Jesus on the cross so that you and me would not have to face it. And Jesus has faced it in our place. And so those who fear God really have nothing else to fear. Now, I talked about the scripture and how it consistently speaks of the idea that the fear of the Lord 
uh, is a good thing. And there's a sense in that and where it is. I actually want to um, revisit some of the verses that we looked at earlier, but I will say that the fear of the Lord, although it, there's a healthy aspect to it, it's no longer the primary way that we relate to Him, if you have become a Christian. This is kind of a confusing thing, this idea that like we're children of God and He loves us, yet also there's this fear of the Lord that we constantly see uh, that's, that's set as a good thing. How do we deal with this? I want to go to 1 John and uh, see if he can shed some light on this. So 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 to 18 says this, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us His Spirit, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Alright, so this can be a confusing passage, especially in light of all this stuff we see that the Lord delights in those that fear Him and all this kind of stuff. And now it's saying that perfect love drives out fear and and those that fear haven't been perfected in love. So what exactly is going on here? Um, I want to trace a little bit of this theme of how I think that fear of the Lord plays out in the life of a Christian in a healthy way. So if we go back to Proverbs 9.10, which I read earlier, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All right, that's important for us. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. What do I think this is getting at? We have to understand that we are born as as sinful people. Like, right, you've been sinning for a long time. And your sin, the wages of your sin is death. And so naturally, we are under the wrath of God apart from Christ. And so... For us, wisdom actually starts with the fear of the Lord. You have to realize that you are actually under God's judgment, that He is scary, that He is powerful, and His wrath is the most terrible and awesome thing that could ever uh, come against you. Like, if there's one thing to be scared of, that is it. And so the beginning of wisdom is realizing, oh my goodness, I am a sinner that is under the judgment of God. And he has every right to send me to hell. He has every ability to do so. And matter of fact, if he's just, he will do so. Because he says that he's going to punish all sin. And man, oh man, am I guilty of a lot of sin. So this is actually the beginning of wisdom as we start to come to realize that and fear, oh my goodness, I'm under the judgment of God. And then as we look at Psalm 147.11, it says, But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him, in those who hope in His steadfast love. Now here we see both fear and love that are tied together in this passage. Why is it that God is delighting, as He's taking pleasure in those that fear Him, and in those who hope in His steadfast love? Here's what I think is going on. This fear is something that drives us to a place that we realize we have no hope outside of the steadfast love of God. Right? As I, as I understand the holiness of God and I understand my sinfulness before Him, I realize that I have 
no hope. I am not going to work my way to God. I'm not going to do enough to be able to erase all of my kind of sins. I'm never going to be able to make myself holy in his sight. And that is a fearful and terrible thing. But that fear should start driving me to a spot where I have hope in his steadfast love, where I say, God, I have no hope outside of your love for me that you would forgive me of my sin. And this is what, real, what, what drives us to realize the need that we have for the gospel. Right? Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have to realize we have no hope outside of Christ dying for us. But because he did, and his steadfast love is shown in that, it causes us to have hope. Now, there's still a fear there, right? There's a fear and it's like, man, God is crazy and powerful and awesome and I really don't want to fall under his wrath. But there's a hope that, man, he, he loves me and he can forgive me. And then that, that hope takes root in the gospel, right? That the, the cross shows us, yes, that's not a baseless hope. As a matter of fact, God demonstrates his love for us in such a powerful way there that we can trust and know that he really does love us. And so what do we see here in 1 John, where he says that uh, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So we have a fear of God when we think that we are under his punishment, but as we are saved, as we look to the cross, that love that is demonstrated so powerfully there starts to drive out fear in the life of a Christian, because we realize that we are no longer under the punishment of God. Now, have we been perfected in love yet? Now, we've been perfected in the sense that we are perfectly holy before God, but, but I, I don't know that we're at a spot where we're totally without fear or, or, or totally at this spot where we're perfected in love to where we understand it perfectly. You know, like there's still some fear that's probably going to be left over in our lives. And in some ways that can still be relatively healthy that, that it's directed, if it's directed towards God. But I think of it in the way that a, a child fears his father, right? Like a, a good father, not one that beats his children or anything like that. A, a good father is feared by his children. But if you ask him, are you scared of your dad? They would always, always probably say no. Because it's not really the, the primary way they relate to them. The primary way that a child relates to their father is through love. Right? And that's what First John 4 is getting at here. That this is the dominant thing. God is love. Those that abide in love abide with him. Like, so as we are his children, we realize, man, God's primary way that he interacts with me is through love. Now, is there still some fear that a child has of his father if he disobeys him and realizes, shoot, I don't want to be under dad's punishment? Like, yeah, there is for that too. Like, we understand that our dad is awesome and powerful and he hates sin. And we're not just going to walk in that and disobey with him and disobey him and say, well, he's not going to care if we, if we do that. And so there is still, I think, some sort of a healthy fear. And that's the good kind of Christian fear that's going on there. But that, that unhealthy fear, well, it starts as a healthy fear of the punishment of God. But it starts to be driven out as we realize that the wrath of God has actually been laid on Jesus Christ in our place. And so in that, we see how that love starts to drive out fear. And all we're left with is rather an awe and a reverence for the Lord. And I think that that love will be perfected in the day that we're in heaven with him. That his wrath has been completely spent. That we're not in the flesh anymore. That there will be no more sin. And we are perfected in total, perfect love with the Lord. And, and there is no fear of punishment. All punishment has been extinguished. So as I close... 
I want to ask you, who or what do you fear? How much fear is in your life right now? How much of an impact is it having on the way that you live? Who is it directed towards? How does it control you? If you are not a follower of Jesus, then I hope that you develop a healthy fear of the Lord where you understand that you are under his punishment and that you need salvation, that that would drive you to hope in his steadfast love, which he has shown on the cross. That would drive you right into his arms. If you are not, so that's if you're not a follower of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, then I hope that you live in freedom from fear of people as you realize that the only one that's really worth fearing is God and that God is your father that he loves you and that he will always provide for you and that he will always take care of you. And so may today be a day that people are set free from bondage of fear that I think wrecks us in so many ways and stops us from living courageously as the church that God has called us to be. May we be a people that, that see a drastic decrease or elimination of the anxiety that I know rules so many of our lives. And let us be people that live in confidence and in courage because we have the, the almighty God of the universe as our Father. So may we be people that fear Him, that don't fear man, and that stand boldly and courageously for Him in all situations. Let's pray. God, we love you. You are so awesome. You are so holy. You are so good. And uh, you are worthy of our fear. But God, we thank you that you've been driving that fear out as you showed us the way that you love us, and as your wrath was poured out on, on your son on the cross. God, we thank you for inviting us into your family. And Lord, we pray that uh, we would be a people that live boldly and courageously and fearlessly because you are our Father. And we know that if you're for us, who can be against us? We thank you for how you always provide for your people, whether that's in this life or in the next. Help us to live in that reality. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.